Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. Um, I I had one of those phone calls, Keith. It's somebody actually called me. I called and talked to him. I think on Tuesday, and they called me back that night, and they're like, "Did my counselor tell you about my situation today?" And I'm like, "No." He didn't call me. It was just the Lord. Lord was telling me that uh, I needed to check on you. And so, yeah, Keith, that happens all the time. And and it's not like it's not like it's amazing or anything. I I said to him that happens quite often. Just the Lord and Pert kind of prompts you, and you you follow up on it. That's all there is to it. Um, I'm glad you're here. We are picking up in Second Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12. Uh, what, what has happened here is Paul's written this letter to the church at Corinth, and they've basically agreed with him on everything, and he's greatly encouraged about their repentance of their behavior, the change of mind of their behavior, and that they've come on board with his teachings. But at the end of this letter, he's speaking to a small minority of people that have not come on board with his teachings. And they're still following the false teachers that are coming in and giving bad information to them. They're believers in Jesus, but just giving them bad information. And so last week we ended on this speech that Paul's giving inside of his letter. It's called Paul's Fool's Speech. It's kind of foolish, and the the reason it's foolish is because typically a professional speaker a talented speaker, they talk about their strengths and the things that you know that they're capable of doing and all the ministry that's going on around them and the things that are that are happening. But Paul has taken this totally other approach where he's talking about his weaknesses. Where I'm not an eloquent speaker, you know, I'm doing things a little bit different. And so he's in the middle of this fool's speech as we start, actually pick up at the end of chapter 11, verse 32. It says, In Damascus, a ruler under King Aratus guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, if you back up, to the verses we talked about last week, he was talking about all these sufferings that he went through, the beatings and the shipwrecks and everything else that he's experienced in his talking about the good news. But now he's given a specific incident here. He's like, there is this one incident where this is what happened. I had to escape from the city in the lowest forms of exiting a guarded city. Like the good teachers, the ones that everybody puts on pedestals, they get parades when they leave the city. But I was literally lowered in a basket outside a window to escape the city. 
He's he's taking a totally different approach than the rest of the teachers. And then we get into chapter 12, verse 1. He says, boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul was boasting in the previous verses, but again, he was boasting about the opposite of what professional speakers do. Paul chose to boast about his weaknesses rather than his strengths, which is just unheard of in that day. But now he's actually going to boast about something positive. God has revealed things to me and given me visions. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Okay, so you just talked about a man going up to the third heaven. What in the world does that mean? Well, Paul's, first of all, he's referring to himself in third person because he doesn't want to, again, talk about himself as the professional speakers do. They talk about themselves. So now Paul is literally, I'm going to talk about myself, but I'm going to use it in third person because I don't want this to be about me. And then the Jews of that day, they had apocalyptic literature that they believed that there, there was a heavenly Jerusalem. And the tabernacle or temple that was built there in Jerusalem was similar to the temple that was built in heaven. In fact, in Hebrews, it talks about that in Hebrews 8, saying that when Moses built the tabernacle, he did it on the basis of looking into heaven itself, seeing the heavenly tabernacle, and kind of sketching that out and using it as the design for the earthly tabernacle. They believe that there was a tabernacle in this heaven. So here, Paul is kind of giving a a Jewish apocalyptic idea of this trip to heaven and his experience. He was like snatched up. He also sees it as a way of God's honored him. God's honored him, and so therefore he's boasting about that. And snatching him up, taking him to heaven, and then sending him back to earth. This marvelous experience that has taken place was 14 years ago. That would be about 43 AD when that experience happened, if we think that this book was written around 57 AD. This would be the period in Paul's life between his departure of from Tarsus, which is in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, and his visit with Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. So somewhere around chapter 10 of Acts. There's no record of details of this event in Acts or anything like that. And it's kind of useless for us to speculate what occurred. But this is the significance of the third heaven. He says, I know that this man whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except my weaknesses. Like, he's saying, 
this man had an experience that was supernatural. He's not saying it's me, but he knows about it. And he talks about the words being inexpressible. What does he mean by the words being inexpressible? I think either because he doesn't want to folk make that the focus of his story, or the things that God speaks about in heaven are not mentionable down here on earth. That it's such there's such awe about it that Paul doesn't want to talk about it. Now, I think about this for a second. Paul had this experience 14 years ago, and we have no record of it. Never talked about it. If a false teacher or professional speaker or somebody else had had that experience, don't you think that they would immediately begin talking about it as soon as it occurred? Like, we would know the next day. But for 14 years, Paul literally sat on this thing. Verse 6, it says, For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. All right, so here's here's the verse that growing up uh, was talked about a lot. What is this thorn in Paul's flesh? I, I've thought about it all week in presenting this, uh, and I think that there's a reason that the, the first two, like the, the first one is, um, in 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 conjunction with a physical ailment, it was always taught that maybe he had some kind of malaria. He experienced epilepsy. He he talks about his eyesight having infections and not being able to see, and the people coming to help him and things like that. It could be some kind of physical ailment that he had. That could be one of the thorns of the flesh. And then the other one is maybe a mental health issue or psychological issue that he possibly had. Some people will describe it as that, such as anxiety. Uh, we talked about that, where he was worried about the churches. could be depression. Some people even taught that he had a sexual addiction. I don't know how they got that. But you hear all these different things. Now, I personally believe that if you go back in reference to you go back to the previous chapter verse 11 or chapter 11 verse 22 all the way up to chapter 12 verse 10 if you notice he's primarily talking about hardships involving persecution like he's literally being persecuted everywhere that he goes why is he being persecuted? Because these false teachers, let's label them as Judaizers, because he says they come from Jerusalem in last week's chapter. They're Jews, he says, so am I. They, they're from Jerusalem, so am I. 
So we can refer to them as Judaizers. They were the ones that were coming in and saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you still need to obey the Ten Commandments. You still, you still need to have all the covenants in place. You still need to be circumcised. You still, like, Paul's not teaching the full message here. He's only teaching half the message. When Jesus came and he said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's literally removing everything that the Judaizers were teaching. And he was saying, What Paul is teaching is the truth. You're free in Christ. You're free in Christ. So when he's talking about this thorn in his flesh that was given to him by a messenger of Satan, I have to believe that he's talking about all the Judaizers that are coming behind him and trying to change his message of freedom in Christ. Like It's, it's, it's happened in here. I'm, I'm very protective of what comes off this stage verbally. I, I have a lot of pastoral friends, but I wouldn't put a lot of them up here because I'm afraid what they would teach. I'm afraid that they may come in and do the same thing that these Judaizers are doing and they would mix the old covenant with the new covenant because it's pretty common in churches today. I've had a few, and it's happened. It's confused people. It's happened. And we had to clarify. Immediately, we had to clarify. So think about it. If I were to teach this message and convince you about your freedom in Christ and somebody else came in here and started teaching something different, don't you think that would be a thorn in my flesh? Absolutely it would. Absolutely it would. And I believe that's what Paul's referring to when he says, it's a messenger of Satan to torment me. Then verse 8 says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Three? I think I would have done a few more than that. But he said to me, get this, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. My power is perfected in weakness. The beautiful thing about that right there is God didn't really give Paul an explanation. He just gave him a promise. I I promise you, you're going to be okay. If you continue to go down this path, if you continue to submit, if you continue to allow me to live your life for you, you have everything that you need. My grace is sufficient. You don't have to defend yourself against the Judaizers. You don't have to defend my message that I'm presenting. I will take care of you. And it will be perfected in your weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
You see, he, now he's come to the end of this, what we label as Paul's full speech. And you think about the ending of this. It's a beautiful ending where he's referring to his powers perfected in the weakness so the good news can be advanced. Yeah, it's a foolish message. That weakness is going to advance the good news. But it's exactly the beautiful thing that God intended for Paul to do. When you get when you get down to the bottom and realize the only option that you have is God, I will tell people that you're probably in a good spot. When you've done everything that you possibly can in your own strength and you realize it doesn't work, you got to figure out how to change these bad decisions that you're making. Yeah, that's a good place to be. If you can get to the end of yourself and realize that the only way this is going to happen is through God, through your weakness, he becomes stronger. When you can't make the same choices repeatedly, then maybe it's time you give up on making the choices. You give up on making the choices and let this holy living God who resides in you to make the choices for you. It's kind of a big deal. I'm always fascinated by the reception of this message. And when I say this message, I'm talking about um, knowing your identity in Christ. Getting out from underneath the law, getting out from, from underneath legalism. Letting the Holy Spirit live through you because of your weakness, he becomes strong. Whenever I think about how that message is received... I would say that most most everybody in this room probably came to it through some sort of crisis when you were at the bottom. I used to I was trained, I was taught to do evangelism of almost putting people in headlocks. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to be with Jesus forever, you need to know that he died for your sins and da 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 and close the deal. But as I've come to this point of expressing this message of your identity and your freedom, I realize that the greatest evangelism is crisis. Like when people get to the bottom. I'll hang out in the bottom all day long. Because I think that's when people have ears to hear. And that's literally what Paul's saying. And then he he changes as he finishes up this speech. He says, I've been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I'm not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. Like, I have more to say than these guys. I'm not very good at it. 
I struggle with it. But again, Paul is speaking to this minority of the church who's just not buying into him. The majority of them have. They've already gotten on board with it. He's just speaking to the few that are still listening to the false teachers. So Paul had to speak foolishly to get them to hear it because that's what they're used to hearing. He's trying to reach them, so he used their own type of messaging. He's he's directly saying to them, you should have already gotten in line and not made me deliver this foolish message. Verse 12, it says, The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. (laughs) You see, uh, I was explaining to the guys uh, in the booth about the false teaching. What One of the things that validated them was that people would give money to them. They would support them publicly. And if people gave money to you, then you received credibility. That was just the fact back then. And it's kind of kind of the fact now. But Paul didn't do this. He's like, he didn't take money from the church in Corinth, and he saw this as an insufficiency in his own ministry. It's like, I'm not going to be financially validated by you because I don't want to be, because I don't want to take anything from you. That's totally opposite of what everybody else was doing. Totally opposite. If he would have taken money from them, he would have had more credibility in society. But it wasn't his way. We can understand the whole structure of Second Corinthians on the basis of them, one, getting ready for embracing this authentic ministry that Paul has, two, getting ready for them to take up the collection to Jerusalem, and three, getting ready of dealing with the false teachers that he's dealing with in these last three chapters. He says in verse 14, look, I, I'm ready to come to you this third time. He's been there twice, wants to establish the church, wants to encourage them, and now he's ready to go back to them. I will not burden you since I am not seeking what is yours but you. For children ought not to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He's not planning when he gets there to change his ministry in any way. He wants to support the church and give to the church rather than take from the church. Verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. (laughs) Paul is literally being sarcastic here because he did not do it the same way the professional speakers, the Judaizers did. He's actually saying, I I did it just the opposite. Sorry. He did not use their tactics, which the society thought was the honest way to do it. So now Paul's deceived them 
by not taking money. Verse 17 says, did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Did we walk in the same spirit, in the same footsteps? He's literally saying, I sent other ministers to you. My friends, my cohorts, they taught you the same truth that I'm teaching. They didn't take any money from you. Nobody's taken anything from you guys. Everything that Paul and his group of ministers did, they did it with integrity. Verse 19, he says, Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ. And everything, dear friends, is for building you up. (laughs) Paul, you can read this and you can think that he's actually defending his ministry, but he's not. Paul, literally right here, saying, I want to clarify you. I'm not defending anything. I'm just explaining how we've done ministry with authenticity and integrity. This is this is what we've done. This is more about the ministry to the church than it was about Paul's personal ministry. It wasn't about him. But let me show you what we've done for you and with you. Verse 20 says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want. And you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. (laughs) It's almost like he's setting himself up like, I don't know what to expect when I get there. I really don't. I hear good things from Titus and the guys. Sounds like you guys are doing well, but it sounds like these issues could be a problem too. Why does he say that? Because it's not any different today. Like literally, literally it's not any different today. There'll be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I grew up in the church. I've seen it all. I've seen. They can argue about uh, coat closets. They can argue about five dollars. There's all sorts of gossip. Well, we're praying. We're praying. Yeah. Slander. Yeah. I'm thankful for where I'm at. Paul's literally saying, I want you to be on the same page when I arrive. I want you to understand the truth, that you're free in Christ. All this other stuff, I mean, he's writing a letter to a church that's less than five years old, and they don't have this. Right? They don't have this. So they got maybe some of his letters from Galatia. They've got brothers that are coming in and telling stories about Jesus. 
and, and and not only that, there's not like this big temple tabernacle in Corinth. They're all meeting in house churches. So depending on how many house churches there are, how many different interpretations of the stories are there? And he's literally saying, he's literally saying, I, I'm trying to get you guys on the same page. We're all agreeing on the same thing. The basics of this, Jesus came and died. He forgave you of your sins. And now there's the spirit that lives inside of you. He wanted the church to be unified. In the last verse, he says, I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence. And I will grieve for many who sin before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practice. <laughs> Paul's like, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to get you guys focused right here? You're so distracted by so many other things. Wednesday night, I'm, I had the high school students at my house. And we were doing this little worksheet. They had a list of maybe like 10 main Bible characters, and they had to be able to identify them. I'm, I'm talking about like Moses and pretty simple stuff. It was actually children's curriculum. And they had to like look these things up in the Bible because they didn't know them. And so then afterwards we had this discussion and they didn't know who Solomon was. They didn't know Solomon. And I had to tell them, well, he had like a thousand wives and concubines. They're all looking at me like, what in the world? And he's considered to be the wisest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> and I talked about how he wrote the book, The Song of Solomon. And in the Jewish days, the little Jewish boys weren't allowed to read The Song of Solomon. But today, if our kids read it, they would probably laugh about it. Because they've grown up in this sex-driven society of immorality. It's the same thing my grandparents said about us. <laughs> you know? But I'm telling you, the line's moved. The line keeps moving, the line keeps moving, the line keeps moving. And it's crazy today. The same thing that Paul's saying to the church back in 57 AD is happening right here. He's like... I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. Our kids don't read the Bible. They don't read much. They watch YouTube. So as a parent, as a pastor... As a discipler, how, how do you take this passion about God's word and cause it to go out? I think that's all Paul's saying. You guys live in a crazy world, messed up world. Can we not get on the same page? 
can we stop playing this church game? Can we have some transparency in the community? Be honest, be real with one another. Can we just talk about Jesus? Yeah, tonight we're getting together and we're watching Super Bowl. We're going to watch commercials. We're going to eat a lot, drink. But can we not talk about Jesus? Can we not all be on the same page? The basics. This is all Paul's plea is to the church at Corinth. Stay focused on Jesus by the renewing of our minds. We got a lot out there. But how do you take this passion, put it in your kids? How do you take this passion and put it in you? I can't imagine as he's writing this letter, someone's pinning it for him, but just as he speaks this truth, how it's pouring out of him, I love the church. I want the best for the church. Jesus, there's only so much Paul could do, and there's only so much I can do. And it isn't about Paul, and it isn't about me. It's about you doing it in your children, including me. So I pray for passion, I pray for focus. I pray for clarity that people can read your word and they can understand it and they can understand the intentions of the freedom that you created for them through your sacrifice on the cross and your Holy Spirit living inside of them. So Lord, I trust you today. I trust you uh, with my, my family here and I ask that you just continue to lead us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.